Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing The Viscount Without Virtue by Katherine Grant. This was published in 2021. And full disclosure, we did receive an advanced reader copy from the author. And this is the first in the Preston series. There was a novella that we reviewed this past summer, which is 0.5 in the series, which is about the heroine's parents. And there is a twist in the beginning of this that I did not see coming. Me neither. Oh, my God, Lane. I was not. I... I'm going to be completely honest. I was not into it. I was like actually taken aback and like kind of sad. Okay. I want to discuss that at further length, but first the book jacket. Maximilian Hainsworth, Viscount Berwick, is on a mission to write a scathing expose of England's most famous country estate, Northfield Hall. While much of England praises Northfield Hall for its egalitarian economy and boycott of foreign imports, Max knows that the Preston family must have an alternative hidden income to explain Northfield's prosperity. Max is determined to uncover their secrets and humiliate the Prestons with an inflammatory report. Disguised as a carpenter, he gets himself hired so he can learn Northfield Hall's secret ins and outs. A few things quickly go wrong with his plan. Number one, he doesn't bring his own tools. Number two, no one is willing to speak ill of the Prestons. Number three, he keeps accidentally flirting with Miss Ellen Preston. Ellen can see plain as day that the new carpenter's assistant lied about his experience with woodwork. She is willing to overlook this, especially since he is handsome and easy to talk to. However, when she overhears him asking strange questions, she does some investigating and discovers he is one of her father's biggest political enemies. Taking the matter into her own hands, Ellen vows to delay Max's report any way she can. Even if that means kissing him again. Working against each other, Max and Ellen begin asking difficult questions about Northfield Hall. What they discover forces each of them to rethink their own assumptions and answer for themselves. Are their principles more important than love? I think this is a really fun book jacket. Yeah, me too. Uh, and I would say this captures the spirit more than the facts, which mm -hmm. I am okay with. Yeah, absolutely. Like the setup is accurate. I, I would quibble over some of the specifics. Uh, my only actual criticism is I think it might be a touch long and over expository. I think it is a little bit long. But I think it's cute and I think it's fun. But I also think it talks about the serious issues that the book delves into. So I like it. Yeah, for sure. And by too long, I don't literally mean word count. I mean, like, revealing that she finds out he's her enemy really early is something that I think could have been left out of the jacket. Like, you can leave a little mystery there. That's true. Alrighty. So, uh, as usual, we generated a random number and then wrote our own summaries using that number as the word count. Um, I'll go first. Ellen and Max are super into each other. Their chemistry is undeniable, and they grew and learned from each other. I will not date a Republican. <laughs> so are you saying that you're not Ellen in this situation? Yeah, like, on the one hand, really like the couple in this book. On the other hand, the, like, 
kumbaya politics works best when we look past our differences and find compromise even on issues that do not have a point of compromise that is not what the book actually says this is not a criticism of Catherine grant this is just like me projecting my issues onto this text fuck republicans not literally <laughs> oh my gosh okay here's mine it's important to live by your principles especially when that means you can totally sleep with a hot carpenter who lied on his resume. I love that Ellen was a character who had to apply every circumstance to her moral code of conduct. conduct. She was super uptight in a great way about like rationalizing all of her decisions and the way she rationalizes like fucking him. I loved, I loved it. I loved, I loved it. I actually, I, I think I identify with her a little bit in, in the whole, like, I have these principles and I'm going to live by them, but then you sort of, you know, can rationalize the things that you really want to do. Well, and the thing is her moral code, I don't think she behaved in a way that was contradictory. Yes. Like, I don't think her moral code contradicted itself. I think where she was willing to challenge her own ideology and what she used to justify her decisions is where things got a little bit more Machiavellian, shall we say. Yeah, and not not in a bad way, honestly. No, and I really love the central... So this book bites off a lot in terms of political commentary. And while sometimes I think it could have done with cutting some of that back just for the sake of density, I really appreciated the general thesis that, like, perfection isn't the aim. Yeah. That no one can, no one is ever going to be perfect, even if you come up with a system and, and try to follow it to the best of your ability. Like, you might learn something later that changes what the best means, like... I, don't, I, I really enjoyed the flexibility and sort of the commentary on personal culpability in a systemic issue. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, this may sound like a super serious book, and it does tackle some super serious issues, but there are also some really fun romance tropes that go along with it. Yeah, it's actually overall, like, the book has its serious moments. The love story is super lighthearted and fun. So tropes, as you probably, well, you didn't probably know this. You heard it in the book jacket and you heard it in our summaries. Max is uh, there under an assumed identity. So he's pretending to be a carpenter to get hired so that he can do some digging around what really happens at Northfield Hall. Right. And he's doing this so he can publish it in daddy's newspaper. (laughs) Yep. So he's air trying to prove himself. Yep. Um, she is very much woman attached to her land, which we usually see with Ireland and Scotland. Not the case here, but like she loves her people and the estate just as much as the philosophy her parents have implemented. Yeah. So she thinks beauty is superfluous. It's a distraction. So she just wishes that she were ugly. And specifically as it relates to her hair, everyone would always comment on how lustrous and gorgeous and what red hair says about her character that she has taken to wearing, like, widow's caps. 
mm-hmm. that cover her whole head and like disgusting sack dresses. <laughs> disgusting sack, yes. <laughs> Where's yep. the line? There's no, there's no line. <laughs> but I think we've had a couple of heroines who like end up determining that their beauty is more trouble than it's worth. And so it's hilarious because he's like, why am I so attracted to her? All I can see is like the bridge of her nose. I have no idea what her body is shaped like. She could be bald. No idea. I love that. It's pretty great. No, me too. It it was, and his awareness of it and his like self-commentary made it even better. Absolutely. It was so great. I, 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 Max is a, is a, complex difficult character but what makes you like him what made me like him was how much he liked Ellen yes what can I say I will have more to say on that later yes um so obviously because her like personal hang-up is all about her hair and hiding it there is a big like Rapunzel let down your hair moment and not only is it like oh my god she's so hot with hair it's also he has a particular thing for redheads yeah he doesn't even know she's a redhead. It's a fun moment. So there is a moment where one person is throwing rocks at another person's window. It is hilariously executed to hear, though. It is not just like the, I'm going to hit your, your window with some pebbles so I can round you and you can sneak down to have a clandestine affair. Nope. It's really good. <laughs> And then there are some sexy lessons because what is sexier than having someone teach you how to do something? Yeah. And in this case, it's carpentry and she teaches him how to woodwork. And there's a lot of like, from what I could gather, there's a lot of motions that like are kind of thrust. Like a lot of planing and. Right. And she like tells them specifically to like put your arms here, but then really use your legs. Right. (laughs) So it's like, I don't know. There were some hip motions involved. His body was excellent. I didn't do a Gentleman Jackson's body situation here because I have, there's not a passing reference to why he shows up so jacked on the estate when he's like a lazy heir. But they do mention that his muscles get even bigger and better on the estate from mm-hmm. the seductive wooding. <laughs> It's true. True. So they strike a deal, right? When she finds out his identity as revealed in the jacket. And I think we've seen this a couple of times when one person has ulterior motives. It's not always a a publication. But why are you flirting with me? Uh, Honestly, because my dad needs to think I'm marriageable in order to get my inheritance back. Okay, well, what's in it for me if I help you? Like, I think we see this a couple of times where they... Hero and heroine realize they kind of have conflicting objectives. Mm -hmm. But once they're made aware of them, they strike a deal that, hey, I'll help you. But in exchange, you've got to be honest about it or sincere about it or stop screwing over my friend. Yeah. Yeah. And then there is a moment where they just have to get out of the rain. They hide in, you know, an abandoned building. Often it's a hut. I keep forgetting this is a podcast and just keep doing the sexy eyebrow wiggle at you. I know. I'm like, yes, I get it. It's very sexy. <laughs> okay. Let's get this out of the way. 
We reviewed The Baron Without Blame this summer. I really enjoyed it. That the prequel novella about, are about her parents. Yes, that's about her parents. And I was so shocked that this book opens with her mother having died. And it's played for maximum shock value because she's walking around the estate thinking like, uh, it'll make me miss mom less to do this. But it's unclear when that is said, if she's dead or just like away. Mm -hmm. So then when it's official that she died three years ago, you're like, wait, what? I was like, um, this is not a romance novel convention here. You know, nobody dies in romance novels if they have a story about them. If they have their own book or novella, they're not going to die. So I was like, shocked. I think the only exception to that is sometimes you've got novellas written in the past. Yes. About lovers who you then know because you, like, written out of order, written, written non-chronologically. Like yeah. a novella will be written in later from 60 years ago because like say That's a heroine's true. grandparents' love story is mentioned and the author and the grandparents are both dead, but the author will be like, oh, I'll write the grandparents' love story now. That's fair. But That's true. chronologically, if you're, like you can't die. If it's written in chronological order and not as a flashback, the main characters cannot die. Yes. Uh, so I was like, whoa I was really taken aback I was shocked I was like I don't want to say that I was like tearing up but I was tearing up I'm going to be honest because it's not what I expected of a romance novel it's not what I go in there to read <laughs> I was nervous I, I wasn't upset because I didn't care about the novella characters all that much I'm gonna be honest um and I think dead mom is a pretty typical start to a romance novel series so if that prequel mm. hadn't existed but I was worried if it was setting the tone that this was going to be a much darker book yeah and it didn't end up being that and I get why her mom being dead set up a lot of the characterization stuff it was really relevant to this text but it was a like oh shit moment yeah it was it was I think that's when I was like okay this isn't going to be this isn't going to be your typical romance novel so and that is correct. I think this does a better job delving into a lot of social issues and emotional issues than I expect. So I expect what's, going in. Yeah. So what's the deal with Northfield Hall Lane? Why is this place so controversial? So you may recall from the novella that what brought her parents together was sort of their similar ideas about the aristocracy being wastrels and wanting to fight against the major social ills of the time, predominantly slavery and the exploitation of the workforce. So they've created a state. They live by the ideals they set forth in the novella. They have created an estate where race, religion, creed isn't discriminated against, where you know, having a criminal history isn't something that's discriminated against, where laborers are paid and fed and housed fairly, where they don't profit from the slave trade, and they refuse mm -hmm. to import any goods, especially notably sugar and tea, given the time period in England. Um, so it is sort of a communist commune, in a way. It is. It's like completely self-sustained. Except that it's led by a peer in the House of Lords. Right. But 
you know, everything else is his whole thesis is that we don't need to import goods and I don't need to sell my goods at a profit because I will use them for the people on my estate. Right. So. And there so are obviously a, a lot of parallels you can draw to the modern day and theories about consumption and consumerism, but essentially they boycott all products and stores that in any way profit from goods that are in any import structure. Yeah. So Max's dad is uh, what I mean, he's a Tory. Now, obviously, Tories and Whigs, they had other things that they were worried about than just the economy, right? And whether it is supported by slavery or not. And social welfare and the exploitation of the lower classes. Right. In in this book, there, it's much more simplified. So basically, Max's dad is a Tory, and Ellen's dad is a Whig, and Max's dad is like, we need to fight Napoleon, by, and we can't free our slaves because that would mean that we don't have the you know funds to continue this war, basically. Right? Well, and the lower classes are lazy, and if you don't do the crime, you can't do the time. Yes. And so Max has been trying for years to live up to his father's expectations and just can't manage to do it. Uh, and so his father finally makes a deal with him. He was like, there, there has to be something fishy going on with Northfield Hall. So you go and figure out what it is, publish it in the paper, and then once that's done, I will support you. So basically, Max wants to go into politics, and his father's like, okay, I'll help you get into politics, basically. Yep. And so that's why Max is there. I thought this whole setup was super interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's that enemies to lovers thing, but they're never actually enemies. Yeah, their their dads are enemies. Yes. And, and even when they disagree, they don't hate each other. Yeah. But obviously their disagreements are very important. Like the, the issues that their disagreements surround are very important to both of them and not the sort of thing that can be easily shifted, changed, or compromised on. Yeah. So I just, I really got the whole book. I thought Max was a very interesting character, right? So he's he's very privileged. He's been trying to please his father his whole life. Basically, he's been able to travel. Um, he has a lot of fun with his life. He doesn't really have to think about politics or other issues. I think the feeling I got from Max was that he was interested in politics because he felt like it would please his father. So I, I would actually argue he's a little bit inconsistent. I actually thought his characterization was one of the biggest flaws in the book, which, mm -hmm. for the record, really liked this book, and this was not that big a flaw. Mm -hmm. So, like, I'm harping on it not because I really didn't get it, but because there's not much to say in terms of criticism because so much of this is so well executed. Um, he talks about traveling and how his favorite thing to do on traveling was to talk to people of different social classes and religions and customs and learn about why they do things the way they do and their personal histories. And 
even in, I did get the impression he was interested in politics because he was interested in learning more about how the world worked. Yes, some of mm-hmm. that was to please his father, but I don't think his father specifically wanted him to be on the board of a foundling home. That's true. That was something he sought out himself because he wanted to understand more about how charitable institutions in England worked. And so this this character who's sort of, you're being told is driven in a large part by the innate curiosity that also sort of explains why he was willing to take this assignment from his father. I found it really hard to believe that even with a desperation to please dad, he had never thought more critically about the institution of England and other people's lives and well-being. Yeah. At any point in that curiosity about the world? I, uh, one of the things that I thought that I liked actually a lot about Max was that he was willing to grow and change. And I think this was the first time that he was actually challenged. Sure. I just thought the rote acceptance of everything his shitty father ever said didn't seem like I'm fine with him evolving as much as he did. But the complete lack of questioning that was clear he did prior to this, I felt like was a little bit inconsistent with the character we were presented with. And I also just want to add, like, his backstory, he's got a shitty dad who doesn't expect anything of him and is largely dismissive of him and his achievement. You don't know anything else about him. You don't know if he has siblings. Something is mentioned in passing about what his mom would do, but it's unclear if she's dead or just not present when the conversation occurs. Like, his entire, like, we talk about loving a character's rich exterior life. He really doesn't have one. Yeah. Well, and you get the feeling, too, or at least I got the feeling, that he is sort of just back in town from having traveled a lot. And so he's... Maybe? Finding his feet again as well. I do think it's interesting what you say about him accepting everything Daddy said without question. Because I think it makes him a great foil for Ellen who has also basically done the same thing and we're more sympathetic to Ellen for it because we agree with Ellen's father's politics, right? Well, and because Ellen had less exposure to life outside of her home. Yes, but I think it's an interesting choice to make them foils for each other in this aspect. I agree, and I I understand why it functioned. I just would have liked a little bit more understanding where his convictions came from other than Daddy, because he seemed like a character. Ellen, yes, Daddy was what drives her conviction, but she also explains some of the things she's learned on some of the conversations she's had with Mr. Chow independently, and, you know, things she has done and experienced that validate that worldview. And he didn't really have any of those thoughts. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I liked about Ellen's family was that they didn't all blindly follow her father. Ellen did. And I'm wondering if it's because she was the eldest and she was the one who felt like she had to set an example for her family. I'm not really sure why, but it it felt like a real family to me that Mm -hmm. the brothers and sisters would have different opinions and some would rebel and some wouldn't rebel against their father's convictions. I liked it a lot. Well, and their mothers, and they mentioned that prior to her tragic death, Ellen's mother had been ill for a long time. So you get the Mm -hmm. impression she's sort of been the woman of the house in terms of functional interactions with the estate for a long time. So I think to a degree she had to buy in to do the work she did. 
It's true. All right. One of the things I liked about this book is that Ellen is not a virgin and she has a lot of convictions about why she should or shouldn't guard her virtue. Well, why she doesn't or has not guarded her virtue. But what her standards for sleeping with someone are. Yes. Or what her standards, because there's a moment where she kisses him and she's like, hold on. Um, he's about to tell her something she knows she doesn't want to hear. And she's like, um, is she first? I think, now tell me. I just, I wanted to do that before you ruin the moment. Yeah, like, like, oh my God. This first. In then case you, you tell me something that makes me immorally inexcusable for me to kiss you, I'll have already done it. So it's fine. Done. It's great. I, I did get the feeling whenever I was in Max's head that he was like super attracted to Ellen. I didn't always feel that same way about Ellen. I would have loved in her perspective in the beginning, you know, really being attracted to him. I got the lust from her. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you. I, I think it was a very deliberate choice and I actually liked it. I was not as sure of her feelings for him as I was of his feelings for her beyond the lust. Mm -hmm. But I think it really worked in the text because he's being dishonest with her about so much. Yeah. And the fact that he's being so honest about his feelings in contrast, you sort of understand why she's getting these two conflicting messages and wants to guard herself a little bit, but can't guard herself from having sex with him because he's so hot. Absolutely. So, like, I agree with you. The attachment is definitely stronger from his POV, but I understood why that was, and I liked the contrast. And we have a little bit more to say about overall quality and plot, but we'll do so after a spoiler tag at the end. I just want to mention briefly that her, so she has a suitor. He's a missionary. It really reminded me of St. John in, in Jane Eyre, right? I mean, did you get that feeling from this dude? I've never read Jane Eyre. Oh, well, that's the feeling I got from this guy, which is basically like, if I go with him, number one, I will be settling. Number two, I'll be doing work that I don't really want to do. But maybe it's my only option. He's one of the places where, like, I thought everything about him was really well executed, but I don't know what he really added to the plot. Because he wasn't a viable romantic candidate for all the reasons Meg said. And he really existed as a way to add the commentary of missionaries. <laughs> as a, like, obviously a big part of the transatlantic and transpacific engagement that England was having with the rest of the world at the time was trade-based or missionary and religious-based. So I understand like what he added to that wider dialogue that was happening in the text, but I don't necessarily know that it was necessary and it did take up a lot of oxygen. Yeah. I was so I reminded of Sinjin in Jane Eyre. And, and I, I did, look, if this were a different book, I do think I would have considered him a viable option just because... She was like, what, what do I do with this information that I have now? Maybe I do go with this guy over here. I don't know. So, But not this book. I'm not saying I hated it. I thought it was well executed. I'm sort of just asking, do you think this book would have been just as good if he hadn't existed? Probably. I did not mind his inclusion. I thought he was an interesting character. I, I thought that his inclusion made their relationship more interesting once they got okay. to work. Yeah, that was more of a, I don't really have an opinion. It's just something that stuck out to me. Like there was a lot of space spent on him. 
toward the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of like, it was interesting. And I liked some of the dynamic that occurred from it, but I was sort of thinking how much did it really add when I was really wanting to read more of their sex scenes at parties. Yeah. Look, did I believe that there was a love triangle? No. Do I believe that the fact that she had another suitor made him more like pursue her more urgently? Yes, I do. I liked that. You know, even once though you hate jealousy. Once there's a little, it's not, he wasn't jealous. There was just some competition. Girl, girl. <laughs> he finds out she has a letter from this guy and he just starts frantically fingering her. I mean, I would not cut that scene. Just <laughs> I wouldn't either. <laughs> I don't know how you could say he wasn't jealous. It was just competition. That is you splitting hair so you can be true to your own conviction. <laughs> Are you are you saying that I'm being a hypocrite about my convictions? <laughs> I'm saying you're being creative with your worldview. <laughs> I would never use the word hypocrite. <laughs> well, thank you. Did anything in this book offend you? I was not offended by anything in this book. What about you? No. And like, if anything, I say content warning it takes place in a realistic version of the era. Like there are some racists. Yes. Like, that, but th those characters are not sympathetic. It's not defended. Like. You, that's so true. It's so true. It's like, what, what content warning? You are reading a historical romance and there's some history, you know? Well, I mean, given that, a not insignificant amount of romance novels used to, and frankly still do, exclusively feature white people, even in the background. This book does not, and then doesn't pretend it's some sort of utopia. Yes. I do not think that is an offensiveness tag or even a real content warning, but I would just be like, if what you want is just like truly fluffy escapism, that shit happens to people in this book. Yeah. All right. How sexy was this book? Very. Like, very, um, very. Like, like Jesus Christ, Catherine Grant, thank you so much. <laughs> I was like, oh, she's leaning in. <laughs> I was like, yes. As we said, not a virgin heroine, and a heroine who is, like, very in charge of her own sexuality. Yes. And talk about yes means yes. And, like, one of my favorite sex tropes only the final sex scene finally happens in a bedroom. Yes, I was like, <laughs> you you need points for diversity of location. <laughs> but I, I love the like finally a bed after like a ton of hooking up. Also, he fingers are in a carriage, so that whole like jealousy not jealousy sequence is in a moving carriage. Uh huh. So I volunteer. <laughs> I I <laughs> this was. Like, also, props again, the sex scenes absolutely built their relationship. Uh-huh, yes, yes. Like, they were a side of him, and, a, like, he was so not pushy, and I, I don't know. I think he kept saying he wasn't a nice guy, and the sex scenes really showed that he was a nice guy. Also, I love, okay, only moment in a sex scene I didn't like, I think everything else I want to say about sex is post-quarter attack. And didn't like is the wrong word. The only moment in the sex scene that I found not sexy, I thought it was hilarious and super well executed, is they're like running in from the rain so he gets all of her clothes off and then they 
described it like they are both naked and like about to go and she's wearing nothing but this ugly ass widow's bonnet she's not a widow reminder and boots and the mental image was so fucking hilarious like her head is so covered he doesn't know what color her hair is yep and he's already stripped her naked yep and i was just like this is hilarious it wasn't sexy so like not a criticism but just a moment of like oh it took me out of the sexiness for a minute but i laughed my ass off so it was great and then you were back in to the sexiness right right uh yeah (laughs) he was again we don't know where this body came from pre-being a carpenter for roughly 10 days but like this was one of those they're hooking up and he's just holding her in the middle of a room not even using a wall to break yeah because they're like in the shack and you know she could get splinters or there's like holes and rakes and stuff that you could step on. It would really hurt you. So he's just got to like not Restyle it. Yeah. Well, and then he finishes and she's like, sorry, I wasn't quite done again. And they just go back out. I was like, yes. Catherine Grant prioritizing the female orgasm is um, my new religion, I think. I'm not sure. (laughs) He was just also described as so fucking hot. Uh, Yeah. He was. I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. So are we good to talk post-spoiler tag? I think you covered everything I needed to in sex scenes, so we can move on. Oh, that was. this is what I wrote. Three sex scenes, a non-virgin heroine, and some unconventional places to bone. Nice. So I think you covered it for me. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yes. um, okay. So post-spoiler tag. I love that marriage only got brought up during sex. Yeah. Like, sincerely. Mm-hmm. Like, he'd actually been thinking about it, but they were so, like, unsure of where they were and how, like, reluctant. They were. This was totally the, I love you, but love doesn't matter. I was like, yeah. I could have hated that. It could have been so angsty, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It's so good. And it was believable. How many times do we complain that the guy proposes and she says no because he never said I love you even though it would like guarantee her future so many uh, I have issues with so many historical romance novels that do that if you're gonna go to he proposes and she says no even after they've been having sex I need a really good reason and she had a great reason she had the two factors you need stability her life was not ruined Mm-hmm. And a legitimate reason to turn him down. Yeah. She wasn't desperate and there was a good reason. Yes. So, exactly. Exactly. And also, I one of the other things I loved is afterwards he was like, oh, he said, I shouldn't have asked that way. The first like, time. The first time. He was like, that was, that was the worst possible way to do it. I like just loved his, like, <laughs> he was beating himself up mentally. I like loved it. Well, and she was even thinking, well, if he was serious, it's not the way he would have done it. Should have done it. it was just, their differing, like, he said, she said, was so good and not hitting you over the head with a hammer. It was, it was, it was perfect. It was so good. It was so good. It was great. And like, yes, do I love a hero who on the outside is like super confident and on the inside is like, oh no, I said that wrong. Came that, came out wrong. Yes, I love that. I love that. Especially when he looks like Max was described looking. Does not hurt. Does not hurt. 
All right, what else did you want to talk about post-spoiler tag? All right, let's talk about the denouement a little bit. Basically, it's the the discovery that her father has compromised on, on some of his positions and kept it a secret. Sort of. So I thought that was an interesting choice. Yes. He wasn't like furtively speaking out and doing everything himself. He, oh, we're in the spoiler, whatever. He basically, one of the things, as we said, is they're a completely self-sustaining commune. And when they do have excess, they make a point to sell it locally, basically at cost, essentially. Like a slight markup to cover like, the cost of getting it to people and the additional labor. Right. But like effectively at cost. And it turns out that her father, following the incurrence of a bunch of debt when her mother was ill, started actually selling some of their products in London at a huge markup. Mm-hmm. Um, at stop shops that also sell, sell imported goods. Yes. So I love the exact level of compromise and I love what it said too. Yeah. Like that the isolationist mentality also sort of wasn't working. Right. Like not only does this the way he chose to compromise his values, but it was compromising in a way that sort of ignore acknowledged an inherent flaw in his value system that he hadn't quite worked out yet. Right. I I thought it was I agree with you. I thought it was really interesting that it was the specificity of the like is this a betrayal of my principles? The specificity of like what are the things that he's willing to compromise on? What are the things that he's not willing to compromise on? The fact that he felt like he had to keep it a secret because for years he had been I mean, for 20 years he's been talking about how wonderful his system is, how a system works, how everyone should do it. So it's like at this point, if he does admit that he has compromised on some very slight things, does that mean that the entire system is flawed? You know, I, the whole thing was very interesting to me. And, and also Ellen's reaction to it. Yeah. No, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the acknowledgement of the different people who had to be told. So like his estate manager knew, the dyer knew. The brother knew? Yes. Benny knew. Yes. So it, was, it wasn't like a complete secret. And even when she figures it out, her dad isn't like, don't tell anyone. He, he's not. He does not ask her not to tell anyone. But he does sort of, he does that like parent thing, which is, well, you will, you will have to do what you think is best. Yes. Well, but I thought it was interesting because it wasn't, I think to a degree, the mythologizing about the commune was sort of not an intentional thing done by him. Mm-hmm. Like canceling the slave trade and acknowledging the hypocrisy in the import system. Like, yeah, he deliberately rallied against that. But I don't necessarily think he was evangelizing about the estate. I think the whole point was like the rest of the world put words in his mouth too. Right. And like it, the myth of it grew bigger than even he intended. Yeah. So I think he was a little less concerned about the... I think this book implied a lot of economic arguments that it didn't make. Right. That I really, really liked. Yes, I agree. 
I agree. Anyway, I basically, when I was reading this book, you, you always have an idea of like, how is it going to end? How is this going to be resolved? I was like, oh, well, Max is going to be converted to their system and be like, oh, this is what we need to do. And while he was converted to some of the things that they thought, right, he wasn't convinced by the entire system itself. Yeah, and some of that I thought was really well done, and some of it I thought was really well done for his character, but very frustrating. Yes, yes. I thought it was well done for him and a good way to wrap up their relationship in the book. Yes. But if, yeah. I mean, as your summary said, if we're going to put that in real life, maybe a little tougher. Yeah, I thought the, like, basically he eventually gets into politics on his, with the help of her dad instead of his dad. So it's not like nepotism stops functioning. Right. That was really authentic. Um, And he makes it his point to be like a a cross the aisle negotiator. It's just like, okay. But the main issue in this book was like slavery. So maybe don't compromise on that. Yeah. I mean, hopefully he's not compromising on that. There is no defense of slavery. Right. Uh, sorry if I just went political and controversial on the book. <laughs> it's so controversial to say that no. there's no excuse for Save Lear Lane. Oh my God, you are such a wig. Such a wig. Also, um, chamomile tea is disgusting. It is, it is. I agree with you. I was like, oh, this poor girl, she's been drinking chamomile tea this whole time. She can't have black tea, it's so good. Okay, thank you so much for listening. We'd love it if you would rate, review, subscribe. And check us out around the internet wherever you can find plot trusts.